Cities produce more than 60% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Big cities get a lot of attention, but most household emissions in the U.S. actually come from communities outside urban cores, making them critical players in climate mitigation and climate justice. City Climate Corner explores how these small and mid-sized cities are tackling climate change and moving toward an equitable and sustainable future. I'm Abby Finnis. And I'm Larry Kraft. We're co-hosts for City Climate Corner. Hey, Larry. Hey, Abby. You know, I was thinking it's kind of fun that we get to talk to all these different types of cities and learn all about different municipal or local government structures on this show. That's right. And this episode, we're learning about a borough. What's a borough? Well, I was born in a borough. Oh, yeah? In New York City. Yeah. Born in, in Queens. It makes it sound like you're born in a hole. <laughs> Now, some may think that, <laughs> but yeah, I haven't heard Burrow in a long time. Yeah. Today we are speaking with some folks in Etna Burrow, uh, just outside of Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Wait a minute. Did you say Pittsburgh? I did say Pittsburgh. I did a little Wikipedia searching. <laughs> I think it was originally pronounced Pittsburgh, probably with a English accent, which I'm not going to do. Oh, please. No, no. <laughs> Spare everybody. <laughs> yeah. So what's going on in Aetna? You know, we were looking into eco districts and there's a program where you can receive certification on uh, coming up with a plan that focuses on particular elements, which we'll talk about today. Um, but Aetna is the first certified eco district in the country. And so we wanted to visit with them and learn about what they're doing. Wow. A certified eco-district borough. Can't wait. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. We are speaking with Mary Ellen Ramage with the borough of Aetna, Pennsylvania, and Megan Tunyon, executive director of the Aetna Community Organization. Welcome you both to City Climate Corner. Can you introduce yourselves? Hello, I'm Mary Ellen Ramage, and I'm the borough manager in Aetna, Pennsylvania, a little town in Southwest PA of about 3,400 people. Hi, I'm Megan Chignan. I am the director of the Aetna Community Organization, also an Aetna Borough Council person. And I've been a resident in Aetna PA for about eight years now. Great. All right, I'm going to start with a really high-level basic question. Aetna is referred to as a borough. What's a borough? <laughs> well, a borough is a form of government formed under the Pennsylvania State Code, and there are numerous. There are boroughs, townships, cities, first-class cities, second-class cities, and they're actually determined by the community when they incorporate. Difference between, say, a borough and, is a, and a township is a borough has a mayor. Townships don't have mayors. Cities of the first class, the mayor is the chief executive officer. It's a little bit complicated. Pennsylvania's local government structure. We actually have about 23 or 2,400 governments all across the state. So we're kind of an odd bird, but we're happy to be a borough. Abby, I guess today we are borough climate corner. That's right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, can, can you two also, can you tell us a little bit about Aetna as a community, what it's like to live there and maybe, you know, a little bit about the community? 
Well, as Mary Ellen mentioned, there's about 3,400 residents in Edinburgh. It's a really tight-knit community. Um, Edinburgh has been experiencing a lot of really rapid change and growth. But one of the things that I love about it so much is that there are people who have lived here for their entire lives for multiple family generations. And then there are lots of new families that are coming and moving in. And there's just this like really nice spirit of community here where people want to work together, where they welcome each other. And even though we might not always agree on everything, you know, people are very open-minded and welcoming towards new people and new perspectives. So I think that that's one of the reasons that we have been thriving so much in, in recent years. It's just because of the sense of community we have here and how we uh, want to work together to achieve a better future for everyone. How far are you all away from Pittsburgh? About seven miles, seven miles north. Well, we wanted to focus on eco-districts today, but before we get into that, um, I'd like to hear a little bit more about what led to even exploring eco-districts as an option. And Mary Ellen, you and I spoke a couple of weeks ago, and you gave me some background on impacts that stormwater has had on, on the city and specifically around an event in 2004. Can you tell us about that? Etna. We're at the bottom of a 67 square mile watershed and our whole community is eight tenths of a square mile. So that's quite a huge funnel coming down into us. So in 2004, in the aftermath of Hurricane Ivan, um, we were really devastated. We had 400 homes flooded, which is 25% of the community. 200 of those homes had first floor flooding, which is the difference between um, living in a property and not being able to live in a property. And prior to that event, there was a lot of um, parochialism. People down here were saying there's a lot of urban sprawl. People upstream were saying, you shouldn't be there. You're in the floodplain. This horrific event hit, and including our municipal building. We had seven feet of water in here. And yet we had one quarter of our community that we had to respond to who were in really bad shape. This is where they lived. It was kind of this pivotal moment in our watershed where our upstream neighbors um, said, we have to help these people. So we came together, and I, I won't ever forget the day after the flood. I mean, I had no office. I stood in our playground, which working off of a picnic table, and I looked down on our main street, and I saw City of Pittsburgh garbage trucks picking up trash. I saw numerous communities from upstream here helping. From that moment... Um, the borough dedicated ourselves. We, we took a look in the mirror and we said, you know, we keep blaming other people. We need to lead by example. We need to show them that we're taking active steps to do the right thing. Right after 2004, our entire focus shifted to stormwater and everything that we could do in this tiny, densely populated um, in, in the turn of the century, 33% of the community was impervious surface already. So you can imagine what happened after that. So we said, you know, we've got to take some things to pull back some of this. We formed a committee in the North Hills COG, the Stormwater Committee. I'm chairperson of that. And we began actively pursuing joint ordinances, stormwater ordinances. And one of the big end results for Aetna was um, we received some foundation funding and we did a green master plan for our entire community, which was in 2014. And we began actively doing projects through grant funding. And these are stormwater projects. Right now, 
Um, we've con finished constructing our fourth large project. We, we remove about 3 million gallons of water from our combined sewer system. And it's really made an impact on our local environment. And it kind of gave us a different way to look at things, how we wanted to change. And as part of that, um, our neighboring communities, Millville and Sharpsburg, were part of those conversations on the stormwater committee. And so relationships developed and we realized we all had the same issues and the same lack of funding, um, declining population, highway growth really tore our communities apart. You know, we're surrounded. Our whole Eastern corridor is rail and highway corridor. We have whole sections of the community just completely cut off. So we start working together on um, our comprehensive planning process. It's a very expensive process. None of us had updated comprehensive plans. And there was a lot of funding if you did this jointly. So we began meeting and it was it was really a unique experience because, like I said, it's a very parochial area. The first couple of meetings, people were like, oh, no, everything's great. We don't have any problems. And through this relationship building and trust building, by the third meeting, we were like saying to each other, well, if you think that's bad, let me tell you what we're doing over here. And <laughs> long story short is we developed a three-community comprehensive plan. It's called Riverbend. That was adopted in 2015, and we actively worked on um, stormwater collectively, how we would all focus on this in our communities. From that comprehensive plan, the next thing the three communities did together was apply for grant funding to update our zoning ordinances so that we could accommodate these new ways of looking at our community. And that led to this really tight-knit relationship between the three communities which eventually is what helped form the Triborough Eco District, which is where we began our journey and where the Etna Community Organization actually formed out of that those Triborough Eco District process. And I like to say the weave just kept getting pulled tighter and tighter and more people and more people and more people. And it really helped make our community so much stronger. People have recognize the environmental work we've done. We won the governor's award in 2014 for the green master plan. So people began to know this is a place that cares about the environment. This is a place that cares about their people. More and more young families began to move in and it's just a wonderful mix. You know, I've, I've lived here my whole life. I've worked for the borough 42 years. I've been the manager for 30 so I've been here to see the decline of the steel mills, the tearing apart with the highway constructions. Um, we lost four, over 400 homes just to highway construction. So we've always been this community that's had to barely keep our head above water. But the funny thing is, when we start changing our focus and focusing really hard on um, stormwater and the environment, things began to change drastically. You know, I remember the first time a woman was in here saying to me, I just moved here from LA. And I kept saying, excuse me, do you mean maybe Louisiana? And she's like, no, Los Angeles. She said, I Googled Pittsburgh and the surrounding area. And she said, Etna came up for their green practices. We've really put a lot of effort into that. And sometimes it's really hard when you've spent so much time treading water, and frankly, we have, 
between the floods, the highway constructions, the loss of steel mill. For many decades, we were just treading water, trying to keep police on the street, public works. And then, like I said, this pivotal moment came in 2004 where everybody took a breather and said, wait a minute, we got to do something about this and we can't expect other people to do it for us. We need to lead by example. And I think that's what we've done and we've done it very well. This is a really interesting intersection of social infrastructure and hard infrastructure and green infrastructure. And it's all kind of coming together. And I think from what it sounds like, it's bringing people together. I want to go back to what you said. You mentioned the the green master plan or the, the stormwater master plan. And you talked about having a combined stormwater and sewer system. And not everywhere has that, but a lot of cities still do have that. Can you talk about what some of the complications are when on top of impervious surface, sending more water in and, and then affecting people's homes when it overflows? Oh, yes. There's been so much development upstream over the decades. And obviously, we border the river. So these communities also have to soar through us. So sewers that were built in the 1920s, you know, 1900s, for a population that was a lot smaller and up everything upstream of us was pretty much rural and farmland. People wanted to move away from the steel mills, from the smoke and the smog. And so those areas developed rapidly into the same sewer systems. And over the decades, you know, when I first became manager, we had areas in our community that literally had basement flooding 20 times a year, you know, anywhere from inches of water to feet of water. And with climate change and the climate as it is, more and more rain events, um, when those sewers reach capacity, they have to overflow somewhere. They back up into people's basements. They overflow into our streams. The stream in our river here for the longest time, when I was a young child, my parents said, don't go near either one of those. And today, our welcome sign has a heron on it, a blue heron, because we now have heron living in Pine Creek. One of the things I want to say, when we did the Green Master Plan, we also tried to adopt policies for individuals also to become stakeholders. Um, In 2010, we adopted a uh, downspout disconnect program. We actually adopted an ordinance for people to disconnect their downspouts because trying to educate people that when it's raining, that water off your roof, it's actually the water that's coming right up through your basement. We're a very densely urban populated community. We don't want to be flooding people's sandstone foundations. So we we require perk tests and people coming out from our public works. If they get the rain barrel, if they're able to have it, they actually get a credit on their sewer environmental surcharge. And it's really helped educate people in our community too, how they can be a part of the solution. And people love that. People love being a part of something bigger. The downspot ordinance is a little over 10 years. And the rain barrel program we started about four years ago, where we actually sell them at reduced rates. People at certain income levels can actually get one for free. You know, you look at that as this physical way of making things better. But what I have learned and have found to be the most wonderful part of all of this is the educational tools. People now tell us when things are going bad somewhere out in the system. I saw this, I saw that. It's really helped them have a deeper understanding 
of what's happening right in their own environment and how they can help make it better. Mm-hmm. It's my favorite part of all of it. We've been talking about this term eco-district. We don't have eco-districts where, where I am, so I'd like to learn about it. Megan, maybe you can tell us more. What is an eco-district? It can get kind of jargony, so I'll put it in, in terms that I would use to describe it. An eco-district is a, a community, it could be any size community, a, a large city or just a neighborhood of a few blocks, where the residents come together on a grassroots level to create a plan for sustainable and equitable development for their own future. So that doesn't just mean buildings and parks, it also means what programs do they want to see, what initiatives do they want to enact that's going to help improve the quality of life for the people who live you know, in their own neighborhoods and communities. Got it. Okay. And now you are the executive director of this relatively new community organization right. that's, I think, tied in with some of the work of the Eco District. Am I correct? Yes. My um, organization, the Etna Community Organization, which we call Eco, it's very fitting. We were born out of our Eco District planning process here in Edinburgh. We are the backbone organization, and our task is to steward the Edna Eco District plan to enact the projects and the programs that were identified by our community as being their, their top priority projects for growth and development. How do you implement some of these projects? I mean, take one and tell us, how do you do it? So we just actually had a grand opening of a parklet that we just finished creating on the site of a building that was flooded out in 2004 during Hurricane Ivan. Um, It stood vacant for many years and the borough demolished the building and then they acquired the property. Um, And then we partnered with them with some grant funding to develop it into a stormwater management site. So there's a very large thousand square foot rain garden on the site. And we added some park elements, uh, permeable pavers, site furniture, native plants and trees, herb garden, and a little library. And we just opened that last week. In the case of Eco, everything that we do is really in lockstep with the borough. We work in very, very close collaboration. I mentioned I'm on the Etna Borough Council, Mary Ellen's on the the board of Eco. So it's it's very much a collaborative effort. All hands on deck, you know, the, the community comes together, they volunteer, they donate, go after grant funding uh, on our own and also with our partners in the Triborough, um, depending on the project that we're trying to pursue. So that's, in a nutshell, kind of how it's done. Mary Ellen, I think you mentioned before that there was a tight relationship with two other boroughs. And did you mention that there's an eco-district that encompasses all of them or those separate? How does that work? Well, we formed, and it's not a nonprofit, it's um, a tri, we call it Tri-Borough Eco-District because each of us worked on our own plans. One of the communities had actually gone through the process before us, the education and planning, and they were the ones that really, they came and said, you're doing all this work that is Eco-District work, your green master plans, your green streetscapes, you know, you need to go through this formal process. And we joined together and we actually um, were able to secure quite substantial um, foundation grant for the three communities, a little over $2 million. So each community um, had specific pot of that money for projects that were relevant in their community. And then some of the monies were 
across the three boroughs, like workforce development projects, solar projects, but Aetna chose to use its money um, to finish our Riverfront Park, which opens this Friday, which we're, it's our first connection back to the river in, I don't know, 150 or, or more years. So it's wow. really phenomenal. Yes, it's unbelievable. It's incredible. And it was a former industrial site. Two years ago, there was one sumac tree on it. And today it's got rain gardens and birdhouses and it's just awesome. But um, one of the things we chose was the eco-district planning. It's really brought our three communities together. It's not a nonprofit, but we meet together once a month and we talk about problems and sometimes we help support each other. Things that we've gone through right now, we have a major focus on opening a library in our community. We lost library service over the years. It's It's been decades since our children have had access to that. And it's not easy to walk here. As I told you, we've been dissected by highways, so we can't even get to neighboring communities safely with our kids. You know, one of the communities already established a library. They're partnering with us on how we do this. And right now, we're actually looking at um, not only opening a library here in our community, but partnering with them for it to be shared services, shared director, which helps their tiny community. It builds support. So it's just been, um, it's incredible. And as I said, this funding, there were things that we did that we wanted to do separately. It's been a really unique way for communities to interact together in a more formal process. Cool. I'll have to note, Abby typed to me that apparently I've shown my ignorance because apparently we do have some eco-districts in the area, but I didn't know that. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll call myself out on that because Abby was polite enough just to text me to the side. I added a smiley face. You're the first certified eco-district, right? What does it mean to get certification? It's a rigorous process. When you talk about an eco-district being as a a community, um, you usually talk about it with like a lowercase d. But when you use a a capital D, you talk about the eco-districts organization, which has a protocol that you follow to create a certified eco-districts plan for your community. It's called a roadmap. And it's a pretty intense process. It's a lot of work. And we were very lucky to receive that funding because we were able to hire consultants at Evolve EA, which is an environmental architecture firm in Pittsburgh. And they held monthly educational meetings for our community members, which were all free and open to everybody. And um, they talked about the different issues that we'd be discussing in the plan and getting consensus and feedback from all the residents on how to include it in the plan, you know, in a way that they can understand. And then they took that information and they translated it and organized it into the eco-districts protocol. And um, that's how we were able to create the plan. How far out does that look? So it's tiered, right, Mary Ellen? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have like a two-year plan and it goes into perpetuity. It would be great to accomplish all the all the projects in there. And, you know, I think it's something that you can go go back and revisit and revise. Uh, you know, we have a lot of private development coming into the community too. So that's not in the plan that we completed uh, two years ago. You look at it pretty much in like two-year intervals and then you go back and reevaluate. Being a smaller community and built out and dense, there's probably some pros and cons to that. There's lots of collaboration, it sounds like, in community building and engagement, and that's really awesome. But it's also a challenge with the highways going through with already having 
built out infrastructure, but you have, you've touched on a couple of major projects of reclaiming some space and turning it into park space and reclaiming some space and, and access to the river. Can you tell us a little bit more about what it went into those and how you're able to convert that space and what it means to the community to be able to do that? Well, I'll talk about the riverfront. You know, it's funny, I was just working, I'm working on the program for Friday and I'm doing the history of all of it. And if you come to the park, one of the things we did in the park, um, we have core 10 signage all the way down the one wall of the park. The pictures are done with little holes in the core 10 steel that make a picture. And actually at night they're backlit. It's, it's phenomenal, but it shows the history of the property up until, as I said, two years ago, it was the former industrial site. Um, it was a sand and gravel plant part of it. The borough had its old water treatment plant there that, that was condemned in 1984 and closed. Prior to that, we had an electrical plant there that generated um, electricity for the community. That, that closed in the 70s. We were steel mills everywhere. You can look in our town. You can be on a street in our town. It amazes me. There's a giant building that was a steel mill. Two doors away is a church. And then the rest of the street is maybe eight or 10 pre-World War II brick houses. And they're all on one street. So that's been a huge challenge. I remember when we were doing our zoning ordinance, trying to figure out how we could you know, deal with that. But this riverfront was something because of the highways that we've just been cut off with and nobody knows it's there. I give a lot of credit to our county. They came out with an Allegheny uh, Trails Initiative in 2011. Trails have been really big in the Pittsburgh area, but going south of us, nothing coming into the north. You know, when we saw this initiative, we thought we have an opportunity here to see something that we could never have seen ourselves. Like I said, when you live inside of something for so long, even the oldest people in our community, that property was nothing but industry or the death of industry. It was never anything else. So, and at the same time, when you're just trying to keep your head above water, literally, financially and physically above water and keep police on the street and public works, it's really hard to see something different. So here was, you know, Allegheny County coming and saying, this could be a different story here. So that was exactly 10 years ago. And eight and a half years ago, we were able to acquire the balance of the property. And I will happily send you pictures. I have before and afters that are absolutely incredible. And we had community meetings and people said to us, you know, we want kind of a passive place. We're fortunate because of the steel mills. We have a beautiful swimming pool playground, all those things that belong to the mills that they gave to the community as they were leaving. People wanted a place just to sit and relax. So it's it's all educational. It tells the history of our waterfront. It tells the history of the birds and um, wildlife that would have been migratory here prior to all the industry and how we are welcoming them back. And we have the heron here now. And it's been Roughly an eight and a half year journey. We actually had to fight the railroad. We have to cross railroad tracks to get it. You know, we're really proud of, we took Norfolk Southern Railroad to the PUC and we won. 
which is tiny little Aetna 1, and uh, we're able to cross. If you were here, you would see we still have this really crazy challenge because no one can see that area. They get into this, this mismatch of highway bypasses, and they're like, there's a park here? Well, there really is. 500 feet behind that massive highway wall, there's this beautiful park. So that's one of the things we're working on right now. We did a study on how we can safely get people there. Yeah, we're very, very proud of that project. Megan, do you want to highlight any more on the building space reclamation project that opened up a little park space and what's included in that? That's a good example of like placing green infrastructure into, you know, an area where there was blight and then there was um, vacant property. Um, And that's happened in a couple of places where buildings had to be taken down due to flooding. And, you know, Mary Ellen and the borough have put rain gardens in and and green infrastructure. Another project that we're working on is we're, we're in the process of acquiring one of the landmark buildings in our downtown district, a beautiful old building that has really been disinvested in over the years. I mean, they did that terrible Pittsburgh thing where they took the big windows out and put tiny windows in and put big soffit up over the, the beautiful wood carvings at the top. We're trying to acquire that to create the Etna Center for Community, which will be a community center and library. Um, and that would be just such an essential thing to bring back to the community. As Mary Ellen mentioned, you know, we used to have Etna schools here, a school district. We used to have Catholic schools here, and those all have been now moved to um, the larger regional school district. So we don't have any more schools or educational assets in the in the community. We also don't have that third space, that third public space where people can go and gather and where we can host programming. So that's really our big picture. Once we have this building reclaimed um, and we spruce it back up and make it look like it, it was back in its heyday and have that space for people to come and receive services and to gather and to really do the kinds of things, do the kinds of work that we want to do to make sure that we do have an equitable future here for everyone, all the residents who have been here, you know, through all the, through all the hard times, new residents that, that want to come, we want to, we want to have assets here for them so that they have the opportunities that people in the more advantaged communities around Pittsburgh have. And I think what's critical about that property is, you know, our, our market values are starting to increase dramatically. One of the old steel mill buildings that was 90% vacant for decades was just sold for $2.9 million. It, it had, uh, I don't know, 50, 60 broken windows in the backside of it. And it's being transformed into a robotics hub, like a tech flex place where people can come and learn how to make robots, artificial intelligence. And we immediately connected them to our school district and said, we want you to provide classes for the kids. We want them to be able to come here and learn this. But those kinds of things are starting to push market values up. You know, I look at detransfers and, you know, my mind is just blown. Homes in the flood area are going for $200,000. This piece of property that Megan's talking about is in the heart of our business district. We kind of have a three-way where three streets meet together and it's, you know, there's a gazebo. It's right there. It's so beautiful. You can see the architecture from way back. For us to be able to protect a space, a historical space like that in the heart of the community that is free for all, everyone can go there and use the services, I think is critical 
based on what's happening to our real estate. Having that in the heart of the community sends our message that this is for everyone. You know, we want people to have the ability to learn, to educate, to grow, to commune, to eat together. We're very passionate about working on that. We're happy to be partners together on that project. It's been a fun journey so far. It sounds like this a lot of this process was kicked off by that big flooding that had happened in 2004 and all the floods that had happened before that. Where are you at now? Has How is things going with, with flooding in the community? Well, I will knock on wood when I say that this. We have not had our stream over top since that event. September 1st in our area was really scary. Our creek reached 14.6 feet, which we actually have in our protocols that at 14 feet, it's going to start to overtop, and it hasn't. I think we've done so much work on, I told you about the green infrastructure, but we actually got a million point three dollars shortly after that big flood event, and we did major flood protection projects, stream bank restorations. We raised a couple bridges. We have really put a focus on that. And September 1st, our stream did not overtop. We did have some basement backups because of the combined sewer system, you know, and we continue to work towards that. But we did not have flooding on September 1st of this past year. So it's it's unbelievable. Considering that in that time period, from the early 2000s to now, in generally because of climate change, flooding events generally around the country are getting more frequent. The amount of precipitation that's falling at certain times is getting more. So what you all have accomplished is pretty remarkable. Given that, from this journey you've been on, what advice would you give to others? Well, my advice would be every single thing I've told you about, all these wonderful projects have been through collaborations, through relationship building, through trust building. It's amazing. And with with your community beside you. We have such a strong volunteer base in this tiny little community. Everybody's out there working together. Again, like I started out saying, it's been so parochial here with all these municipalities and things. And I think we are a perfect example of no, throw those throw those walls down and welcome people in. Educating our neighbors upstream about all the stuff that was happening up there, how, what it really was causing down here was huge. A lot of the work I talked about, people started to say, let's let's lead by example. It got people far more wealthy financially, um, the demographics to say, look what they're doing there. We got to look at what we're doing to make that better for them. Every single thing I've we've done here, every single one, it's some projects like the, the park I'm working on now. It's really important to me that you acknowledge and thank everybody. I have a whole page of people. I mean, and they, they go from the Audubon Society giving us the correct um, verbiage for our signs on the migratory birds. We wanted it to be real. We're going to the top of the food chain on the birds and have them tell us, <laughs> the experts tell us <laughs> what birds really were here or should be here. I think, you know, there's a whole world of wonderful people out there with good ideas, young, old, new, and just being able to be open to listen and to help understand and then then help others to understand and educate 
on on what's happening and how you see it and how you need it to be. That bringing them into the fold just changes everything. When we started the Eco District process, one of the things I really, really wanted to do, we actually, my council adopted a resolution saying before the process even started, we are committed to this process. Our elected officials will come and hear. And they did. And maybe in the beginning, it was because a piece of paper said they're supposed to. But the next thing you know, they they were sitting beside people they represented, neighbors, and and really getting to hear firsthand what people needed and wanted and what would make their quality of life a little bit better. So it's more of an open arms thing than what we're used to in government, keeping everything to yourself. And so that's what I would say. Megan? I would really reiterate everything Mary Ellen just said. It's all about collaboration. We learned so much from our organizational partners who started this eco district process before we did. I mean, our next door neighbors, Millville, have been doing it for a decade before they brought us in and, and taught us everything that they knew about eco districts. That was so important. When I started, I was former high school teacher and stay at home mom. You know, I don't have a background in sustainability. I'm just a concerned citizen. And Mary Ellen brought me into the fold in the local borough council. And I got involved in the eco district. So now, you know, it's my it's my job. It's what I do every day. And I, and I, I love it. It's, it's so rewarding. And the main reason is because we brought the community together to create this plan together. And we listened to what their needs were and what they wanted to see change in their community and how we could make that change equitable for them and not just for, you know, property owners or developers who are coming in from the outside or people who live outside of the floodplain. We have really just developed this huge coalition of, like Marianne said, volunteers and people who care about our community. I'm thinking about our Earth Day cleanup. A few years before the eco-district started, there was a few dozen people who would show up to clean the streets. And now we have over 300 people who come out every year to help. This year, we cleaned every single street in Etna. We had a sign-up sheet so we can prove it. (laughs) Wow. That part is so rewarding, working on something together with people who you care about, who care about the place where you live. It's a really cool story of kind of the small and mighty and the power and, and collaboration and what you can get done. So thank you for joining us for our first episode of Borough Climate Corner. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, Abby, what were your takeaways? I think the biggest thing for me is that this is a story about collaboration and and what can come from working together to work towards solutions versus blaming or finger pointing or tearing each other down, maybe. And I don't know if it was quite to that extent, but we make a lot more progress when we work together rather than being in, in conflict with one another. So I thought this was a really cool story, both with Aetna coming together with surrounding communities as well as driving more engagement within the community itself. I noted they were talking about the litter pickup thing they did where they had participation from 100% of the neighborhoods and groups in, in the community, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. And just the projects that they're like a couple weeks apart from ribbon cutting of of some new parkland within their community and that reclamation of space and and beautifying their community, you know, going from pretty heavily impervious surface, kind of hard surface community to to thinking about different ways that they could soften that and and grow food and provide spaces for people to enjoy and relax and um, take part in the community. 
yeah, it's amazing the creativity coming from this this relatively small community. You know, thirty three percent impervious surface they had, twenty five percent of their homes being flooded. Now, it, it's granted it's not a large area, but still, that's I mean, think about if where you live, one in four being flooded, and floods happening twenty times a year. That's kind of mind boggling. Yeah, they're in kind of a tough geographic position being close to the Allegheny River and downstream from a lot more impervious surface where communities are developing out. Just being mindful of communities that are downstream when you are developing, how much can you reduce that stormwater runoff versus how much are you contributing to increase volume and flow by by increasing impervious surface? And so just having that more holistic approach to stormwater management. It seems like we're hearing from this story and in Duck Hill, where just these relatively small improvements in green infrastructure seem to have really, really big impacts in in the amount of flooding that occurs within these communities. Stormwater, as in many things, doesn't respect city boundaries. Yeah. Collaboration on this stuff is super important. It definitely doesn't. I think it's it's just a really great uh, outcome, and there's obviously more to come. And having that the nonprofit there who has folks working on implementing some of this, and they're able to receive funding that the city otherwise might not be able to receive, seems to be a really big advantage in helping to make sure that these projects move forward. Also, you have Mary Ellen there, who's been 30 years as a manager and just plugging away at this. And then Megan, who's relatively new to it. So this really nice, you know, partnership and working across people that have been involved for a long time and people, you know, relatively recently involved. Yeah. And they're like integrated across all different things. You know, they're like, I'm on this board of this thing with with Mary Ellen and I'm on that with Megan. And and so it's just it's a cool community effort. Absolutely. We hope you enjoyed this episode of City Climate Corner. If you like what you're hearing, make sure to subscribe and give us a review. If you're able, become a monthly supporter through Patreon. As always, you can find more information on this topic and resources from each episode's guests on our webpage, cityclimatecorner.com. If you have an idea for the show, send us an email at cityclimatecorner at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. City Climate Corner is produced by Abby Finnis and me, Larry Kraft, edited by me. Our production assistant is Maggie Morin. Music by... King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.